Hello, and welcome to the Inside Writing Podcast. I am your host, Josh Sippy. As a reminder, all of these episodes are recorded live, Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time. You can sign up on the Gotham Writers website for free. Now then, on to the show. Talking with Ken Davenport. Ken is a two-time Tony Award-winning theater producer, blogger, and writer. His writing credits include the Broadway musical Getting the Band Back Together, and his production credits include Godspell and Kinky Boots. He's also the founder of Davenport Theatrical Enterprises and Theater Makers Studio. Productions of his work have been produced internationally in over 25 countries around the world. Ken, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here. There we go. <laughs> a little delay there when the camera takes effect. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm a, big, course, yeah. I'm a big fan of Gotham. I actually took a playwriting uh, workshop years and years ago, back in like 19 or something. Um, so I'm a, I'm a fan. Ah, that makes me happy to hear. So that might come up again throughout the questioning, but I, I wanted to start, you know, it, w- with you, you have such an extensive theater perfo- portfolio that it's hard to the point where it's like, well, what haven't you done? But I, I want to get back to, <laughs> to the beginning, uh, which was like, what was that sort of the creative spark that kicked off your journey to where you are today? Well, I was involved in the theater since I was a little kid. So my parents were uh, involved in the local theater and they dragged me to an audition for my first show when I was five years old. Uh, And not coincidentally, they were divorced when I was five. I always say that the theater is the one place that they could get along. Um, So I, uh, and that's where I got hooked. So I felt I was an only child and I felt like I found my family when I found the theater. And I, then did the theater until I was about 12 years old, got too cool for it, and then thought I was going to play for the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Celtics simultaneously, like I was going to be that kid. And that didn't work out so well. And then got rebit by the bug my junior year of high school when I saw Les Mis. Hmm. So I am 49 years old. I consider myself part of the Les Mis generation. There's a whole bunch of us around in their 40s. We're here today working in the theater because of that show. Because it, it, it is the showboat, the Oklahoma, the West Side story, a chorus line of our generation in that it, it moved us in such a way. It moved me specifically in the balcony of the Wang Center. Like I was leaning forward so much. Go Boston, by the way. So much that I remember saying this, this feeling. I want to be involved in making people feel this way. And I didn't know really how I was going to do that. Um, I was performing at the time. So like most people, that's what we just do. Okay, I'll just be an actor. And then it wasn't until later on I realized there were so many other uh, different ways to move an audience. Um, And what I found, which is more suited towards my talents for sure than performing, uh, was producing and writing. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting. So you started off as an actor. And at what point were you, did it, did it register to you that you could do your mission in other ways that you could just write the show, you could produce the show. When, when was that like a big stepping point for you? Did you give up acting altogether? It was a gradual process, but I do remember performing in the Yeston Coppet Phantom at the Carousel Dinner Theater in Akron, Ohio. And this was like post-grad, I went to Tisch at NYU and I graduated and did well and was getting a little, you know, some things here and there, summer stock and non-union tour. So I was starting to work. And then I got this job at Carousel, which was like a big job back in those days. Like to get a job there, I was like, oh, you're going to Carousel. 
and I was making like $130 a week or something. And um, I remember thinking, wait, this is a good job. Huh. But more importantly for me, I had like 45 minutes of offstage time. And I remember thinking like, what am I doing? Like, this is not like, I can't do that. I work so hard to get this job. And, you know, I, I, I knew, I, I, I think that really what different, I, you know, I have a podcast of my own and all the successful people I've interviewed is what differentiates them from so many others is that at some point in their career, they realize they may be looking for one thing and they go, Oh, this is only going to take me so far. And that's what it did for me. I was in the ensemble of Phantom. I had 45 minutes of offstage time and I looked around and I had assessed the talent level of other people and where I was. And, my, and I was like, oh, these people have something that I don't. I'll be fine, but I want to be just more than fine. So I said, I'm going to start doing other things where some of my more natural talents lie and then work hard at those and developing those skills. The best comparison I have is, to this is Jason Alexander from Seinfeld fame did my, and Broadway fame more importantly, did my podcast. And he apparently was like this incredible pianist growing up. And then one day he looked down at his hands and he realized his hands were small and that he would only be a good pianist because he was limited by his hand. So he switched to improv. His life takes off. Like, that's the thing. I think I recognized I would only accomplish so much and what else could I do? Mm-hmm. So is, it, is that when you switched to writing? I, yeah, I don't, listen, the funny thing is I'd always been writing since I was a little kid. And every show, I would come up for ideas for show and I would write them. You know, I, I had the distinct pleasure of working with Andrew Lloyd Webber now as his executive producer here in North America. I started writing a version of Oedipus Rex, the musical, when I was like 16 years old. And sent it to him, you know. So, uh, you know, I was I was always that guy. Um, so, I just started to write a little bit more, and I really started to write more seriously. When, frankly, I couldn't get the rights to anything else. You know, as I started to think, oh, I'll produce my own shows, I'll put together things, and like no one would give me the rights. I was like, I guess I just got to write my own stuff. Um, so that's what I did. I like that. So your first, your first off-Broadway producer credit, as well as directorial credit, was the musical The Prom. What, where were you as a creative when this started taking place? Like, were you pretty confident in your abilities at this point? Was this a major breakthrough? So just to be clear, the show that I did was the awesome 80s yeah, prom, yes. which was different <laughs> than the prom the musical. Um, much different. It was my uh, first show. It was an interactive show like Tony and Tina's Wedding. And no, I didn't know what the F I was doing. I mean, like, and this is another in the 200 or so episodes of my podcast that I've done, the other common phrase that I've heard from people when they just start out is, I didn't know what I was doing. So to anyone out there listening right now, I will tell you this, as you start to do whatever it is you want to do, whether it's write a play, write a television show, or book, or like make a sourdough starter, if you say the words... I don't know what I'm doing. That's actually a good thing. It's at, the thing is you have to push through that and do it. Because um, a lot of people, most people say, I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm going to stop doing it. And the successful people I know all just push harder through it. 
And that, that is when they find success. So no, I didn't know what I was doing. I just, the other thing I will tell you is that, so the, the, the longer story is I had come up with this idea for this show, the awesome ladies prom um, years before, but never done anything about it. And I met with Hal Prince, the famed director, and he asked for all these ideas for, of shows of mine. I was pitching him everything. And he said, do you remember the first show I ever produced? I said, no. He said, it wasn't West Side Story. Don't come out of the box trying to produce West Side Story. That was my third show. Just do something, anything. Because I was pitching him like the most ambitious projects. Willy Wonka, The Chocolate Factory. It's like, no wonder I wasn't getting the rights to this. I was like a 20-something, didn't know what I was doing. So I went home that day and he said, do something, anything. So I developed this show based on the movies that I loved as a kid, Pretty and Pink, 16 Candles, all that stuff. And I really didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I needed actors. I was like, oh, I'm going to improv this to life. So I'll put an ad in the paper looking for actors. And then a whole bunch of pictures and resumes shows up, showed up on my desk. And then I'm a guy that likes to have a very clean desk. I'll show you. Like, like I like not much on it. So I was like, I got to do something with these pictures. Okay, I'll separate. Ones I want to talk to, people that I'll save for the future. Okay, I got to one pile. I'll have to have an audition. I'll have to have a callback. I'll have to have a first rehearsal. And I can honestly tell you, so for those of you who know the city, uh, I was just there yesterday. Ripley Greer is at 528th Avenue. There is a McDonald's right there on the corner. Five minutes before our first rehearsal, I was in that McDonald's eating chicken nuggets, reading a book called How to Improv because I didn't know what I was going to do. But that's the thing. I just did one step after the other, one rehearsal after another rehearsal. Okay, we have a script and a show. I need a space. Okay, I have a space. I need to like... And slowly but surely, the next thing you know, the show runs 10 years. But you don't, you don't think about that when you start. You can't think about like, oh, I'm going to create something that's going to run 10 years. You just think, how am I going to get to the next step, the next step, and the next step? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it, it, I always like to talk about rejections, at least briefly on these shows. I, I'm sure at this point, you know, especially because you mentioned how you weren't getting the rights to certain shows, you were facing a lot of rejection, I imagine, in that early going. How, how do you push through those rejections whenever you especially when you don't feel like you know what you're doing. Yeah. Like, look, it's somewhat easier to push through that, believe it or not, when you haven't done anything, when you don't know what you're doing, you're just like asking for everything from anybody. What can I do? What can I do? Um, it's a little harder actually when it gets later in your career. So, but I face it, listen, I faced it this morning. I faced it yesterday. Like I get rejected all the time. You know, people say no to me all the time. Part of my job is to ask people for money, a lot of money. And believe me, people have a very easy time saying, no, I don't want to invest in the theater. The key is to keep asking, of course. Uh, and yeah, you have to get numb to it. I mean, the cool thing is the more you do things, the more you get numb to it and you don't, it doesn't bother you. And whether that's reps of lifting weights in a gym or running miles, if you want to run a marathon, you just have to do it. Um, I'm a big believer, you know, I'm a golfer. So if I want to improve as a golfer, I have to hit like a hundred shots to improve like this much. 
So, and it's the same is true for asking for money, writing plays, all of it. You just have to do it. Like the other thing I say about writers, if you look at successful writers, the thing that they, that they burst on the scene with that got them discovered was never their first one. Never. You know, Hamilton was not Lin-Manuel Miranda's first show. Dear Evan Hansen was not Paskin Paul's first musical by far. You got, that's why I tell like all the writers we work with at the theater maker studio and is like, you got to get that first one up and out. You got to get it out because you're going to improve so much just by getting it up and out. And then you got to do another one and another one and another one until you eventually hit. It's like hitting a hundred golf balls. So I'm curious then because in quick succession after, uh, after the awesome eighties prom, came Alter Boys and My First Time, also uh, off-Broadway credits to your name. Did you feel, uh, I, I, obviously you were growing as a creative at that point, but did, it, did you feel more self-assured by the point, by the time you got to My First Time? Yes and no, because like, okay, I've been there, but every single thing in the theater especially is different. Everyone is different. And the second part of it is when you have something that works or you've been out there and you get a few more eyes on you or this sort of thing, it becomes a little more high stress. Like no one knew anything about me as a writer or as a producer when I did the prom. So expectations are low. (laughs) The more you do, expectations start to rise. And what you have to do, and I have to do, and it's hard. How do I channel the same 20-something kid that was just like asking everybody and anything and staying up all night and doing the things it needs to do? Um, that same energy and hunger now on my 30th show as I did on my first. Mm. And uh, it's, it's work, but I do it. I, I sometimes say that, especially people in, you know, what we call theater makers, like anyone who wants to make theater, a writer, director, whatever, you own your own business and you have to treat it like you're a startup all the time. You are a serial startup person, just constantly hustling and grinding. And it's tiring, but that's what's going to separate you from the others. And then uh, you, you had your first Broadway play, uh, Speed the Plow, came in 2008. What was the difference between producing off-Broadway and then now producing for the first time on Broadway? So the interesting thing about my career is I, I cut my teeth as a company manager for big Broadway shows. That's where I learned the business. So I always knew I wanted to produce shows and write shows and create shows. So I went to off-Broadway first because I could call all the shots. Like I literally knew that being the CEO, being in charge and the buck stopping with me creatively, business-wise, I'd just learn more. I'd make a crap ton more mistakes, but I knew I would learn more. And And I could do that. I couldn't do that on Broadway. I didn't know enough people yet to be able to put together $10 million or 50 or get the rights to things or how to run a room of 20 people. Like I just didn't know how to do that. So when I started producing on Broadway, I connected with a few other lead producers so I could sit in these big rooms. I had been in those big rooms as a company manager before and witnessed that. But now I wanted to sit in those rooms and actually watch lead producers do it as a co. So Speed the Plow, a bunch of the Will Ferrell, I was a co-producer to a great producer named Jeffrey Richards, who was the lead, as I learned and developed my own style. 
And then really my first lead producing gig on Broadway was in 2011 on Godspell. And that's where, um, what I tried to do actually is what I was just saying before is, you know, Broadway and off-Broadway are very different, very different. But what I tried to really in, in, instill in my style on Broadway was the off-Broadway style, the hungry style, the grassroots marketing style, and inject it into the producing of a Broadway show. A lot of people, broad, for a lot of people, broad, producing Broadway shows is like a giant steamship. Like you put it in the water and you sail it that way. And you know what? If you're going to hit the iceberg, you're going to hit the iceberg. It's very hard to turn those ships because they're so big. What I wanted to see if I could do is take some of the off-Broadway style, shake it up, do a lot of different things. And we did a lot of different things. You know, Godspell, we crowdfunded, had over 700 investors for as little as a thousand bucks, never been done before. To see if I could merge that style to try to make us a little more adaptable and flexible. And also for me, a big part of it is appeal to a younger audience um, to try to get them into the show. Mm-hmm. So that, that's interesting. So you went from you know, off-Broadway to co-producing to producing on your own. How did you know when you were ready to take the next step or did you not know? And it just, the opportunity was there, so you took it. Yeah, that's the thing. You, gotta, you, you will never know. And if you wait until you know, you will wait until you are no longer around. And if you wait until you're ready, you also will never know. I was definitely not ready. I don't know anyone that says, oh, I'm ready. If they say you're ready, you're not ready. The key is like getting up there and trying. You should feel a little bit outside your comfort zone, whatever it is, and know that and trust that out of every situation something good is going to come from it. It may not be what you think, but you will learn, you will meet people, you will get experience and something good. Every bad experience I've had where a show hasn't worked out or something, something good has come from something good. And you have to like look for those blessings. So no, I wasn't ready. Something came, the first show I actually ever did was 13 uh, on Broadway, um, which was by Jason Robert Brown. And Jason had been my vocal coach when I was at Tisch in NYU. So instantly I felt a connection. I loved his music. I knew him. It was a, and it was, for me, it was a very unique show. All teenagers in the cast and the band. That spoke to the marketing guy who really likes to do unique stuff. If you know my career, crowdfunded Godspell, the Deaf West production of Spring Awakening, one man Macbeth with Alan Cumming. Like I'm attracted to very unique shows that stand out from the market. So 13 was, I was like, Oh, that feels like my DNA. And that's what I jumped at, whether I was ready or not. And one question I always like to ask is, you know, now that you're hitting all these achievements, at what point did it start to look like what you had wanted for yourself when you first set out to do all these things? Like, did it, did you feel that sense of accomplishment? Like, Oh, I'm really doing it now. Yeah. There are moments where I like slideshow moments where you're like, Oh my gosh, but actually it's no, it, it, the change happens so gradually. You don't see it. You know, it's like growing taller as a kid, you know, everyone's like, look how tall you are. And you're like, really I'm taller. Like you don't feel that. 
But you, so people around you say it and you're like surprised because it happens so gradually. But certainly, you know, I remember sitting at an opening night of a show I had produced and my name was on a table and I was like, oh, wait, I actually did it. Or seeing a review like written by Ken Davin, I was like, oh, wow, I did this. Or obviously the award on the shelf back there. Yeah, that moment is like, holy crap. This is what, when I was a kid and watched the Tony Awards, wait, I'm delivering a speech right now on that stage. That, that makes no sense. But really, I, I don't remember that moment at all, by the way. Um, and it, it's hard to like realize that that's what, um, that's what you've been waiting for and wanting all this time. Because again, it happens so gradually. But you have to stop and realize and take stock in that. Because that's what, what gives me those, those wins along the way that everyone will have just in varying degrees. Or what you have to stop, remember, and go, oh, right, if I keep working my butt off, maybe for another five years, another win will come. Just like it did before when I worked my butt off. Mm-hmm. And then I have to go back because you mentioned how you always, you're drawn to unique projects. And I'm, I'm curious how you go about it. I don't want to say defying the market, but it feels like you're creating shows that, that are off the beaten path, that aren't like the mainstream push of something. Does that make it more challenging to produce a show like that? Yeah, there's no question because people can't, it, when you do things that haven't been done before, people can't see them. And whether it's a consumer, investor, like most people, if they can't see it, they won't want to support it. You know, it's like not easy to do those things to like, you know, the famous Henry Ford quote about like, if I had asked people what they wanted, it would have been faster horses. Like they couldn't see what he was even saying or thinking. So, and listen, I I believe it's, you know, I, I follow Seth Godin marketing or product development. Like it's all about creating the most remarkable product, something that isn't out there because that's what people talk about. And in cluttered environments, you need something that will stand out. And that's a lot harder on the way up. But if you can break through and look at it, you know, some of the most successful shows that Broadway has ever had, if you look at them, they're exceptionally unique in some way, shape, or form. Whether it was Phantom with its spectacle, whether it was Les Mis with its length, whether it was a chorus line with its, its concept musical, like what... There's something unique about these things that stand out. Hamilton, for sure. There's like 17 unique elements to that show that make it special. Mamma Mia, you could say, was exceptionally unique at that time. We had never seen a musical that had taken such a popular score and set it to a fictional story in that way. So, yeah, when you make something very unique, you actually make it a little harder for yourself at the beginning. But that's where the monster successes come from. And I, I want to talk a bit about how, because a lot of your mission involves giving back to the theater community. Um, and we'll get into more specific uh, projects that you've had in that, in that facet in a bit, but I wanted to, what, what inspired you as a creative to want to give back to the community so much? Well, I remember very clearly like working my day job and then going home and staring at my computer for hours, the other eight hours, if you will, right? The like five to nine, I was like, what can I do to break through? Like, and looking for information everywhere. And again, this is the nineties. So there was no internet like there is today, but I was on it. 
I was on it and I was talking to people and searching and I just couldn't find any information on how to increase the odds of your success. Like that's what I was, what do I need to study? Who do I need to talk to? What do I need to learn? There just wasn't programs. There just wasn't anything. So I said to myself, dang it, when I achieve some level of success in this business, I'm going to start putting out information. So I think it was 2009 or 10. I started a blog. And I just said, I wonder if people will read this. And I'm just going to talk about what it's like to be in my trenches every day. And I had a few off-Broadway shows under my belt and off-Broadway, like not much. But I started talking about my process and asking for advice from people and, um, and just sharing everything I did to put up a show. And it took off. And do I think I wrote some good stuff? Yeah, but it took off because it was unique. No one else was doing it. And my mission was to lift the curtain, if you will, on what it took to write, produce, develop, create a Broadway show. For Godspell, I did this thing called 100 Days to Godspell, where every day I did a blog entry about something I was doing that day to get the show up, an audition, an ad meeting, a marketing meeting, like whatever it was. Just I, I'm a big believer in just lifting the veil and becoming more transparent about what we do, because when you do that, people will make more theater. And I say this a lot, but I just believe the world is a better place if there's more theater in it. And there's only more theater in it if there are more people making it. And that's what I, that's why I do everything. If I can help people make more theater, then I'm actually doing what I can do. I'm not, you know, I'm not like a lot of smarter people out there about climate change or all these things. What I know I can do uh, is encourage people and educate people and hopefully inspire people to make more theater, which will make the world a better place. I definitely agree with that. Uh, I have to ask too about uh, you. You founded Davenport Theatrical Enterprises. I'm I'm curious what what was the motivation behind that? What was that going to help you achieve? Well, look, that was just me forming a company. And to talk about not knowing what I was doing, I had put uh, and I was listen. Just to be clear, I had spent ten years working on the business side of Broadway shows, of ten million dollar Broadway shows at the time. Okay. Uh, I produced my first show. I Awesome 80s Prom is like a showcase workshop thing. I did six performances of it. I walked into my lawyer's office. I said, oh, I, need, I think I need to, I don't know what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do now because I'm going to turn it into like an official off-Broadway show. He said, have you started it? I said, yeah, I've actually been doing like one a week for six weeks. He was like, under what company? And I was like, I don't have one. I've just been like taking the money into my personal account. I've been, he was like, are you what we have like, because listen, if someone had broken their leg or something, I could have been in big trouble. I didn't know what I was doing. So I officially formed my company in 2004 um, because my lawyer would have like uh, slapped me on the wrist seriously if I had not done that. So that's where it came from, but it's actually, um, I have a very interesting theatrical tradition on both sides of my family. So uh, my mother family. Davenport is my mother's maiden name. And uh, my great-grandfather was a producer, a publicist, and a lyricist. And he had a company called Davenport Theatrical Enterprises. So I named my company in honor of him. He wrote a musical with Sigmund Romberg and the whole bit. The other side of my family, I'm actually Indian. 
So my real name, last name is Hasidra. And my father, even though being part of the Indian wave of doctors in the 60s that came over from India, he was a theater fan. And we have a little Bollywood tradition in my um, on my father's side of the family. I have an uncle who was a Bollywood actor in the whole bit. And my father is really the one who said, don't be a doctor, pursue the theater. So um, I have that uh, both sides of my family. So I honored uh, my Davenport side with the name of my company. And my dad passed two years ago and I honor his side of the family with, I have a, uh, the Dr. Kenny, as he was called, Hasija Encouragement Fund, which um, we, uh, we donate to emerging theater makers and all sorts of programs out there. That's great. Um, so, you know, you founded this company and then in 2019, it was named one of the fastest growing private companies in the world by Inc, by Inc 5000. How did that happen? How did that come about? You know, that's, um, I, I was, that was one of the, the things that I've really been most proud of. In fact, I have to, just to show you how, uh, I, I have a whole board over here of things that to remind me of those like quick wins and the acceptance into that is like right there. And the reason that I, that was such an honor for me is because we were the only first and only Broadway producing theatrical producing organization to ever be on that list. And again, my mission is to expand the reach of the theater. So if I can get the traditional business world paying attention to theater people, well, then maybe they'll get more involved and see more theater, invest in more theaters, sponsor more theater people. So that's what that was, was about. And it was quite an appeal process to get them to even consider something like us, uh, but we did. And um, obviously we made it. Great. And then speaking of things you've created, you're also the mind behind Theater Maker Studio and also Theater Maker Summit. So first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about what those are? Yeah, so the Theater Maker Studio is a masterclass community for theater makers. So I, I took the concept of masterclass.com and added a community to it. So it's got like a hundred hours of educational resources on every subject you can imagine from dramaturgy to working with a choreographer to enhancement deals and royalties explained and finding a producer and social media marketing and everything else about it. So our job is to increase the odds that people will get produced. That's what we do. But more than just that, what we added was a big community around it. So there's a private Facebook group. There are, I'm doing one tonight. So I get on a call and a Zoom call with people and do a coaching call where people ask me questions and we just um, we try to help them get to the next stage uh, and all sorts of things like that. It's a huge community now and uh, it's something we're very proud of because again, it's, it's inspiring people to create more theater and better theater. And then, yeah, every year we have a conference. This, uh, our conference happens to be this weekend, uh, which is the Theater Makers Summit. It's two days plus a bonus day, so three days total. Last year, there were a thousand attendees, virtual, a thousand people from all over the world, expecting the same this year, a hundred plus speakers, a hundred speakers, A-listers, Pulitzer Prize winners, Tony Award winners, Academy Award winners, you name it. And again, doing panels on every aspect of making theater from dramaturgy 
to equity in the theater, to our keynote conversation this year is with Andrew Lloyd Webber himself, right? So this is the largest gathering of theater makers we know anywhere. Um, and it's virtual, which again, one of the, I try to find a blessing in this damn pandemic like every day. And one of the blessings has been that we've been able to connect people in the theater from all over the world and really show its global reach. And people don't have to fly here to participate anymore. They can do it from the comfort of their own homes. And again, inspire people to make theater wherever they are, including if they want to get to Broadway, they'll learn how to do that at the summit. So I have to ask because you, you, you're doing so much. Do you still find time to write? Is that still something that you have time to do? Yeah, hundred percent. Like that's my focus. It's my focus going forward. Um, I'm writing a brand new musical called uh, Joy based on the life of Joy Mangana, who is the subject of the movie Joy with Jennifer Lawrence. I'm writing for finished the first draft of a screenplay. Um, I've got a play in the works. I have to be very disciplined, right? I have to be very disciplined. Um, I'm a 5 a.m. guy. So I get up at 5 a.m. I go through my morning routine, little meditation, all the things I need to do journaling and then from six to seven o'clock I write so at least I get an hour in every single day at least and that's been very helpful and I what I try to do is I'm a big I'm a I break things down very logistically when it comes to my writing so I will say okay I'm writing like a one-act play it's going to be 65 to 75 pages all right let's see 60 pages let's just say 60. If I do five pages a day, I'll have a first draft done in 12 days. All of a sudden, that doesn't seem so hard. And all that I try to do with my first draft is puke up five pages a day. I don't care how bad they are. Like I tell people this. So this was one of my, one of my pandemic goals was to write a screenplay. It's called The Dan Plan. If you Google it, you'll see where I got the rights and what it's about. So I can tell you two things about this first draft, which I finished. Two things. Number one, it's not very good. Like, it's not very good. Number two, it will get better. Like, that's it. First draft, Ernest Hemingway said it. The first draft of anything is always shit. Always. This is, eh, maybe it's crap. I don't know if it's shit. It's crap. But I also know that only now can it really get better. Only now can it really get better. And that's what excites me. Like, I'm sure all the writers out there know, like, so hard to get that first draft out. But when you do and then start to refine it, it's so much easier. So it's like getting to the gym. You get to the gym, you start where it's like, oh, right, I, I can do this. So that's what I encourage people to do. Get that first draft out no matter how crappy it is. So it's probably just a matter of discipline, but I have to ask because I know so many writers struggle with this, especially getting the first draft out. What do you do? Like, Because you acknowledge that it's crap, but how yeah. do you keep going whenever you know what you're writing is not good yet? I don't, I trust myself that I'll figure it out how to get it there. Like, you know, again, okay, this isn't going to be good. I'm still figuring it out, but I'm just going to finish. It. I'm just going to finish it. I equate it to a sculptor. Like a sculptor needs a lump of clay in the middle of the room in some misshapen form in order to make it perfect. This is my misshapen lump of clay. 
And now I'm going to make it better. I'm going to cut off an arm and add another. I'm going to do all sorts of things, but I can't do that work until it's in some form. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't ask for too much feedback until the first draft is done because people, everyone has their own opinions, their own tastes, and you're going to get torn in 18 different directions. The thing is to not think is to just spit it out. And this is the real challenge. The more you do it, the more experienced writers out there, I know will uh, know will understand this. When you wrote your very first draft of your very first show, when you were a kid, like you just spit things out. Right. Like I wrote, a, I still have it. I wrote a short film when I was like 11. Like I didn't revise it. I just wrote the dang thing. I, you know, I literally wrote it on like lined paper, right? Like you just did it. Where the real skill of writers come is getting it out and then making it better. The inexperienced writers that don't go on to better things, write a first draft and think, oh, look, look how amazing it is. This is going to be my key. No, no, no. Your 10th draft may be your key, but your first draft isn't. So let's talk about how we get it better. So why screenplay? Why, what made you decide to put this into screenplay form as opposed to putting it as, as a play? I believe that there are certain ideas that are set for each medium, right? This happens to be of the sports performance genre. One, Broadway doesn't do sports very well. Um, including our audience. Like this, the marketing guy in me goes like, oh, the audience doesn't do sports very well. So this is, this is actually a golf movie. And that's just not who goes to see Broadway shows from a, from a demographic perspective. And also we don't do that well on stage. So you have to ask yourself, like all ideas are not for all media. Like, and including the stage, like when I get an idea for the theater, I have to ask myself, a director taught me this, like, I know exactly when, 2000, director, I, I gave them a script and they said to me, Ken, the first question I always ask is why the stage? And for me, this script that you just showed me, I just don't understand why it has to be a play or a musical. If it can be anything else, it should be. Because the theater is a very unique form of storytelling, not realistic, right? We don't show car chases. We show theatrical versions of car chases. So we have to ask ourselves, what about the theatrical element or way of storytelling is going to enhance the story? You know, like great examples of that. I mean, Hamilton, of course, is a great example of that. But us... Um, whether it's a little shop of horrors where they have one moment or a gentleman's guide uh, to love and murder. Yeah. Having one actor play all those roles made it the storytelling even better. That's theatrical. Doing, if they had done that show any other way, it wouldn't have been a hit. If, if they had different actors playing all those roles, wouldn't have been a hit. Just wouldn't have. And then we brought up marketing several times throughout this. And one thing I always hear, whether it's book publishing or, or, or script selling, is that writers don't have that marketing gene. It's hard. It's like you have to switch off one part of your brain and engage in another. Have you always been good at marketing your stuff or when was that skill acquired? Yeah, look, I've always been, I've always been somewhat of a business guy in that when I was a kid, my dad was a cardiologist. I opened up a candy store in his office. 
So I was selling chocolate bars to heart patients. So yes, I was always, and trying to figure, I remember I called it Kenneth's candy shop and I spelled candy with a K. Like, you know, I was always just thinking about little angles and things. I wrote a commercial for Converse sneakers and I sent it into them when I was 13 years old. So I was always thinking, and it's true, the, the most successful business people I know and artists I know all have an innate marketing gene or have developed it and used it. Like I did a documentary years ago about one of the top unsigned rock bands in the country. And I interviewed a band called OAR because my band, the subject of the film, OAR, which became a big success, used to open for my band, but OAR outpaced them. So I interviewed Mark Roberts, the, the lead singer. And he's as a 16-year-old kid from Baltimore, Maryland, he said, oh, I, I was in a band. And then I started to apply to colleges. And I started applying to Missouri, OSU, OU, Indiana State. And I was like, Mark, what was a 16-year-old Jewish kid from Baltimore, Maryland doing applying to Big Ten schools? What, why would you, why'd you want to go there? And he said, because I wanted to go to a school with a huge student body because I knew my music would have a better chance of spreading. And I remember thinking that guy has the innate marketing gene in his DNA that helped him become a big success. So you, the good news is this, you all don't have to be born with that marketing gene. But you, without a doubt, have to develop it because everybody I know, everybody, they all somehow found a way to market them as I and market themselves. And I say to people now, because now it's like you, everyone does it. Like 10 years ago, if people, you were marketing yourself, including me, they'd be like, look at him posting something on social media. That's because so many people didn't know what social media was. Now, marketing yourself is like an accepted thing. And it's like not, it's okay, like not okay to not market yourself. Um, so I tell people now, like, if you're not willing to market yourself, no one will be. How do you expect anyone else to? You've got to figure it out. You have to do it because that's what separates those who make it and those who don't. You can't just wait around for a knight in shining armor to like swoop in and pick you up to a land of publishing deals or movie deals or, you know, Tony awards and royalties. Another, another great example, if you don't, uh, because this, um, if you don't mind me telling it is for that same movie, I interviewed Rudy that, you know, the, from the subject of the movie, Rudy, um, Rudy Rudiger. And I said to him, how did Hollywood find your story? Like, how did they, who knocked on your door and said, I want to make a movie of your story? And he said, what are you talking about? I was knocking on doors of Hollywood for three years before someone agreed to make my movie. And that's it right there. He knew deep down that his story, just like all of you out there listening, know deep down that your story, whatever it is you're writing, will be a hit. The difference he got his butt to Hollywood and he would not stop until someone said, okay, fine, I will make it. And he got a lot of rejection, a lot. 
But that guy, as you know, is tenacious <laughs> in that film on football and in getting his movie made. So before we get to q and I have to ask one question because it's just so unique. And it's that you created a board game. It's called Be a Broadway Star. How did you, how and why? Like, where did this even come, come about? So the story there goes that my girlfriend at the town, time, now wife, came home and she was at a party with a whole bunch of theater people. And she said, I just, I said, what'd you do? And she said, oh, we played uh, apples to apples. This board game. And I was like, what is a bunch of theater people doing playing apples to apples? Why aren't they playing a theater game? And then I went, oh, wait, because there isn't one. And in that idea of standing out from the market and doing something that's not everyone else is doing, I literally was in the shower. I remember exactly where I was. And I started like writing on my fogged up mirror, like board game. Is there a board game? And then I wrote, be a Broadway star. And I remember going to Amazon or Googling around and not finding anything. And I I just knew because I would want to play. You know, it's like with shows, I produce shows that I want to see. That way, if they disappoint me, at least I produce something that I want to see. And I believe I have a sense of what audiences want to see, even if they don't know it. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm not. But I just knew that there would be a market for that. Mm-hmm. And so, I didn't know what I was doing. We Googled how to make a board game. <laughs> but we, In the same way, I created an app called At The Booth, which told you what was at the TKTS booth way back when, before there was an actual app, when apps were new. And I Googled how to make an app. I mean, like, this is what you do. This is what you do. Let's get into some audience Q&A now. Uh, first question, do you, I'll say, do you have a support network now? And did you have one back then? And what did it look like? And how has it changed? That is such a great question. And the, because I'm going to say and um, that I, I didn't have as much of a support network as I should have had and that I have now, but I'm still working hard to get it. This, listen, this business and in any business is very hard to do by yourself. Theater is a collaborative art form. I'm an introvert, believe it or not. Uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you're going to be like, how is that guy an insta- introvert? And just remember, Instagram is shot all by yourself. That's, that's the trick. Um, so I am an introvert. So I'm a guy that would go home. I'm going to solve the problem all by myself. I'm going to figure it out. And I was able to figure things out. But had I involved other people, I would have been able to figure things out faster. I'm a big believer in the mastermind concept, surrounding yourself with a peer group and masterminding your way to success. That's what the, we have these in Theater Makers Summit. And I have a, a group, like a very advanced group of theater makers that I mastermind with every week. What can we do to get to the next level? So, and now I, I have had to work hard to make sure like I'm producing some big shows coming up a musical based on the life and music of Neil Diamond, joy, Broadway vacation, like some big stuff. I've produced a lot of big things, but I know now, first of all, some of these are even bigger. And I also know now, gosh, I, I will learn so much more by asking other people for help and advice. So I now call up people And I've worked really hard to develop relationships with people so that they will take my call and give me some advice. I just did it today. 
had a big, big question about like Neil Diamond and, and its rollout. And I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I know I'm going to phone a friend. So one of my biggest regrets is I did not develop that support network early. So look around to you at who's doing what you're doing at the, with the same passion and connect with them and go out to coffee and make regular dates of them every Monday night at 5 p.m. You get together at the same coffee shop. Watch how fast your success is accelerated. That accountability of someone going, hey, did you write this week? What do you got? Show it to me. It's unbelievable. We've, we've developed that with Theater Maker Studio and it's been a big hit. So then follow up to that is how do you find those people? Like especially because writing is such a solitary thing Like, and most writers are introverted. So it is really hard for them sometimes to find, I mean, speaking from my own experiences too, it's hard to find people that are at the same place that you are. So where do you look for that? Yeah, it is hard. And it, it, you know, I struggled early on because no one, I couldn't find, and I'm sure a lot of people on this call will feel the same way. I couldn't find anyone as passionate as I was and willing to sacrifice People were like, let's go to the club this weekend. And I'd be like, first of all, me at a club is not going to work out in my my (laughs) blue blazer and khaki pants. But uh, I didn't want to go to a club. I wanted to work on a show, right? So like, it's hard to find those people, but you got to just keep looking. The great news is today, as opposed to when I was getting going, there are Facebook groups. They're like, go to a shut up and write and don't shut up. (laughs) Like, you know, go outside and hang out. You got to talk to people. That's the thing. Writers are introverted. There's no question. So you have to be the one to start the conversation, or as I say, serve the tennis ball. And then when you find someone that is like you, do not let them go. The other way is support people like crazy. Go to other people's shows. Do things. Read other people's stuff. Volunteer. And I'll read your play. I'll read your short story. I'll read your whatever. Help other people, and they will find you will find them that they will help you. Mm-hmm. Next question. Do you see a market for more projects involving deaf actors like Spring Awakening? Yeah, I absolutely believe that we are, because of the work that Deaf West did and Michael Arden did with that brilliant production. Look, I saw it and moved it. Like, I I can't claim really any responsibility for that show. It's really Deaf West and DJ Kurz, who the artistic director and Michael Arden um, and that incredible group of performers who um, have the courage to go after what they do every single day, despite the limited number of opportunities. And because of the work that they did, they really started the ball rolling on inclusivity on Broadway. And it's getting better. It's getting better. we got a long way to go, a long way. But I just got a pitch of a project involving all blind performers, which is fascinating. Uh, and there's been a lot of movement here. We need a lot more. What I try to tell people is that these are the shows that are actually exceptionally unique. So take a risk. Try that. Write something that hasn't been done before. It'll, it may be a little harder to get people to swallow, but it'll be more successful than so much of just like throwing up the same old thing that's been done over and over and over again. And by the way, I say that like when I was um, given the opportunity to produce Neil Diamond, Right the a bio musical about Neil Diamond, what was my first question? How can I make this unique? How can I make this different than all the other bio musicals that are out there? I am not just going to do what everyone else has done. 
because I don't want to do that. I want to do something new and different. And when people see it, they will see something unique. So then last question before I let you go, uh, parting advice to people, just a general thought for people who want to follow in what you've done or, or sort of follow in the same general career trajectory, what would you tell them? Look, it's, it's very easy. You got to get something out and you got to get something up. So for people pursuing the theater specifically, there is this constant, like the question I get asked the most, and we have like panels on this on the summit, of course, it's like, I need a producer. I need a producer. I need a producer. How do I find a producer? There's a desperation. And what I tell people, it's like, look, we can help you find a producer. But at the moment, and I don't care what you call yourself, but you are the producer. Don't call yourself the producer. There's this stigma, but then I'm self-producing. Is it vanity? No. You have to think of yourself like the founder of your own company. And when you are a founder of a company, at the beginning, you're everything. You're everything. Steve Jobs and Wozniak were making the product, marketing the product, raising the money for the product, like doing everything. And for some reason in the theater, there is this stigma attached to like, I shouldn't produce my own show or I shouldn't have to produce my own show or I shouldn't. You have to. You can put up, and I, we have all sorts of things that, um, you know, put up a different name so it doesn't look like, like all sorts of strategies around it. But at the beginning, you just may have to. So, and that's okay. You'll find a producer that way faster than you can just sending out query letters or like sending out scripts. The way you produce, a, find a producer is to get your show produced, even if that means producing your show yourself. So then before I let you go, uh, any, anything that, I mean, I'm sure you have stuff coming out, anything to promote what, what's coming up for you. So the big thing is the theater maker summit. So if you're anyone out there is interested in making theater and making more theater and better theater, this is the place to be come it again, a hundred speakers, like a thousand attendees. You want to talk about finding people who are like you, you throw a, we have this amazing platform called Whova, which allows connections like crazy. If you are looking to find people like you, I'll tell you what, they're at the theater makers. Like that's where they are. These are people that are willing to invest their time and their money into their career. And there is no doubt, no doubt in my mind, you're going to hear so many nuggets and truth bombs. You will, your head will explode with the amount of action items you have on how to make yourself a better theater maker. Uh, and frankly, if you don't, you let me know. We're happy to give you your money back. Like we don't do this for this. Um, so that's the number one thing. Um, the other thing is I do a lot of stuff. Just follow me on Instagram is probably the best way. It's at Ken Davenport B way. Uh, that's the best place to go, but come to the summit. It's a great entry into the world of, um, of what we try to do, inspire and educate theater makers on how to make more, uh, better theater, or just, I'll see on my introverted self on social. <laughs> Ken, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, you guys do amazing work. Keep it up. Thank Keep you. Up. So do you. Uh, to all of our listeners, we're going to be back next week, same time, talking to Adam Borba. So we'll see you then. And until then, have a good rest of your day.